0: An old man turned 98 and he won the lottery and he died the next day. It's a black flying Chardonnay. It's a death row pardon two minutes too late. In her 1996 breakout single, Ironic, Alanis Morissette lamented life's propensity in this fallen world of ours to take something great and ruin it. But here's what she missed. In the song, she missed God's power of redemption, God's ability and faithfulness to take life's broken messes and transform them and use them for good. This is God's promise to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that he is working all things together for our good. While we may not always be able to discern God's redemptive plans, On this side of eternity, the ways in which God is weaving even the most difficult, ugly parts into the beautiful tapestry of our lives, yet we can trust in God's promise of redemption because we know that all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus, whose own death for the sins of the world offers us the strongest proof and the greatest hope that God really can take the very worst, that this world can throw at him and transform it into the most glorious good, the salvation, the redemption of his people, sinners turned saints, heirs of God's eternal life. Redemption, you'll remember, was the dominant theme in particular of our study together of the book of Genesis last year. God created order and beauty. We sinned and wrecked it, and yet God offered us another chance outside the garden. But sin only spiraled downward. Cain, Lamech, the Nephilim, Ham, Canaan, Nimrod. And yet, God never gave up on sinful humanity. And Genesis ended with those beautiful words, you remember, of Joseph to his sinful brothers that capture the essence of redemption better than any other in all of Scripture. But what you meant for evil against me God meant for good. Praise God for conjunctions, for buts. But what you meant for evil, God used for good. And yet, God never gave up on us. But God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive together with Christ. And our passage for this morning, Acts chapter 6, verse 8, all the way to chapter 8, is chock full of conjunctions. And they point us to the fact that this story that we're going to read, the story of Stephen's martyrdom, though tragic, Stephen is the first Christian martyr to die for his faith, and yet his story is chock full of redemption. There are six overarching redemptive elements or movements in the narrative here, but as you see in your bulletins there, one of them, the third one, comprises Stephen's sermon for almost the entirety of chapter 7. That's 52 verses. It's the longest sermon in the book of Acts, longest chapter in Acts, and guess what? The theme of his message is. It's redemption, and so we're going to find an additional nine sub-points, redemptive pairings there. Typically, We would stand for the reading of God's word, but I'm going to save us time and uh, make sure we get to all one and a half of these chapters, spilling all the way over to chapter eight. I'm going to let you stay seated and we'll just read through the sections as we work our way through this morning. But I do want to open, as always, with you in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, pray once again that you would bless the reading of your word, the study of your word. I pray that my words this morning might be few, and your words might be many. People need to hear not from me, but from you this morning. So Holy Spirit, pray that just as you inspired these words, Luke's pen 2,000 years ago, might you inspire the application of these words into the hearts of your people this morning for our good and for your glory, Jesus, we pray in your name. Okay, and we pick up the story uh, where we left off last week in chapter 6, verse 8. You'll remember we have just met Stephen, one of the seven deacons that the church had nominated and the apostles anointed to the job of serving widows' tables. But in verse 8, he's not serving tables. Rather, we read, "...and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people." So, number one, Stephen is healing folks in the temple, just like the apostles had in chapters 3, 4, and 5. Stephen reminds us here, then, that we ought not to limit the scope of the ministry to which God is calling us because we shouldn't limit the scope of God's Holy Spirit and His empowerment. So, I I told you last week, again, that we need more deacons here at West Hills. We need deacons to free up Elders to pray and preach, but this is an important point Stephen shows us this morning. Does that mean that if you're one of the folks fixing our broken disposals downstairs or clicking through sermon slides in the AV booth this morning, does that mean you shouldn't also be praying and preaching? You shouldn't be deaconing, serving both the communion table and the word of God. No, of course not. First Corinthians 14 1 Corinthians 14.1 exhorts us to earnestly desire all the gifts, especially the higher gifts. Don't limit the ways that God might want to use you to minister to others. Some of you are thinking, you better not ask me to preach. I'm not, I'm not good at public speaking. Guess what? Neither was Moses. As we're going to be reminded later this morning, and yet God turned a man with a speech impediment into the greatest leader in Old Testament history. So don't limit, don't quench the spirit what God wants to do in and through you. Stephen didn't settle for just handing out food. He was working miracles. And surprise, surprise, the Jews hated him for it. They opposed him. Verse 9, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Scholars will point out the Cilicia is the region where the city of Tarsus was located, as in Saul of Tarsus. Saul belonged to this synagogue. So he was right there, front row seat, personally opposing Stephen. But, here's our first conjunction in verse 10, but the spirit overcomes. It says, but they could not withstand the, s- the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. Jesus, you remember, had promised as much in John sixteen thirty three, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And in Luke 21, Jesus said, he, he predicted this exact scenario. He said, they're going to lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness for me. He said, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how you will answer for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake but not a hair of your head will perish. That is the promise that Stephen has resolved to trust in as he's going to march to his death here in chapter seven. Number two, second work, of redemption. The Jews instigate, but Stephen radiates. Verse 11, we hear, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And so they bring four counts of blasphemy against Stephen here. They claim he's blaspheming Moses, God, the temple, this holy place, and the law. And all of them are lies. It's a kangaroo court. Stephen's going to prove they're all lies in his sermon in the next chapter. And yet, second conjunction, in verse 15, but what... Is Stephen's reaction to their false charges. Once again, here, Stephen follows in the example of Jesus, his Savior, who had said, But do not resist the one who is evil, but turn the other cheek. Stephen's like Jesus, like the lamb led to the slaughter who opened not his mouth. Stephen need not say a word because his face said it all. His face was glowing. (laughs) And verse 15, like an angel's. Now, what's the significance of that? In Exodus 34, when God had finished giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, Moses comes back down the mountain to the Israelite camp, and the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. That's what we read. And so here's Stephen, accused of blaspheming God, Moses and the law and before Stephen can even open his mouth to make his own defense God does it for him by transfiguring his face to shine just like Moses did after basking in the presence of God while he was receiving the law don't you love that that should have been all the defense that this crowd needed but their hearts were so hard so stone cold and in chapter 7 now, they drag poor Stephen before the high priest, who number three probes even further. Verse 1, the high priest said, Are these things so? But Stephen views this as an opportunity to witness, just like Jesus told him to. It's going to be an opportunity to bear witness for me. That's what Stephen does. He just goes right on preaching to the very folks that are trying to kill him. Verse two, but Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. And then he launches in, again, reminiscent of Jesus who at his own trial, was asked by Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus preached, my kingdom is not of this world. He said, I came for this purpose to bear witness to the truth. He preached. And Stephen's sermon here is longer than Jesus's and it serves three purposes we're gonna see. Number one, Stephen defends himself against their charges of blasphemy. Number two, he turns the tables and he's actually going to indict them for forsaking the Lord. And number three, most importantly of all, Stephen is going to point us, example after example, he's going to testify to God's redemption throughout biblical history as the ground of his own confidence that God is going to do it again and redeem Stephen's life, even if it means he has to lose it in the process. Three purposes for his sermon here. He offers a defense, he levels an indictment, and he testifies to God's redemption through nine different episodes of Old Testament history. So we're going to fly through them. And I apologize again, I didn't take the time to make all of these rhyme or alliterate like the main main six bullet points. Stephen picks up the Old Testament story with Father Abraham in verse 2. The God of glory... Appeared to our father Abraham. Interestingly, that title, God of Glory, only appears one other time in Scripture. It's in Psalm 29, one of the most reverent and pious and worshipful passages in all of Scripture. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The God of Glory thunders. Stephen says, you, don't, you think I don't revere God? Let me tell you about my theology. And then he retells the story of Abraham, verses 2 through 8, who, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, God said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred, go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. "...yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others." who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. Stephen emphasizes the trials that Abraham faced, all the departing and wandering, the enslavement and affliction, with no inheritance and no child, with nothing but a promise. And if you remember the story of Abraham with us from Genesis last year, you'll recall that for most of his life, Abraham struggled to trust that promise. Abraham would eventually become pillar example of faith, but for most of his first hundred of his 125 years of life or whatever, he doubted God. God, how am I going to inherit this land when I'm stuck here in a tent in the wilderness? God, how am I going to have descendants as numerous as the stars when I'm 100 years old and I'm still childless? And yet, in spite of Abraham's doubt, God blessed Abraham. Verse 7, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. There's but. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And God gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Which brings us to Jacob's son, Joseph. The prototypical example of God's redemption. Joseph was enslaved, but God rescued him out of it. Verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, they sold him into Egypt. But, there's that conjunction again. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. God rescued him. Stephen continues, verse 11. Now there was a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. A famine that threatened them. But, verse 12, noticing a rhetorical pattern here. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt. He sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob and his his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And so while the famine threatened, God used it redemptively to reunite his chosen family. What you meant for evil, God used for good. Not only to reunite, the family, and to save me from slavery, bring me out of slavery, but to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, saved from starvation. And so, verse 15, Jacob went down into Egypt. Stephen continues, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem, Our fathers, the patriarchs, they died. These pillars of faith. And yet, God multiplied his people through it. You've heard of addition through subtraction? Only God can make multiplication out of subtraction. That's what he did. In the wake of the patriarch's death, multiplied his people. But verse 17, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until, verse 18, there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph, and he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. This Pharaoh oppressed God's people. The Pharaoh oppressed, and yet God delivered them. Verse 20. But at this time, Moses was born, a deliverer. He was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. She, she rescued him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. God began equipping Moses for the work of deliverance to which God was going to one day call him and would use him. And yet, rather than embrace this much-needed deliverer, what did God's wayward people do, the Israelites? They spurned him for it. They spurned him. Verse 23, when Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons, we know from the rest of Moses' story that even after he returned and miraculously delivered his people, God's people, he would face similar spurning for 40 years all throughout the wilderness, more mutinous insubordination. Who made you king, Moses? We just want to go back to Egypt, Moses. And God could have said, you know what? Moses spent the first 40 years of his life in the palace of the oppressors And then he got scared and he fled and he spent the next 40 years of his life in exile, even further estranged from God's people, fathering children with a Gentile down in Midian. And don't forget, he's slow of speech. He's got that speech impediment to boot. It sure seemed like Moses, of all people, should have been disqualified from holding the position of Israel's deliverer. And yet, God doesn't call the equipped, God equips the called. God doesn't choose the wise, the powerful, the reputable. God chooses the foolish, the weak, and the despised to prove that his power, his redemptive power, is greater than our shortcomings. So that no human may boast in the presence of God, so that God alone might get all the glory from using crooked sticks like you and me to draw straight lines. So God... Handpicked Moses, commissioned Moses, the least likely choice to have any credibility with Israel, to be Israel's deliverer. Verse 30, but when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. It's God's redemption. But now, don't miss what Stephen does next. This is the best part. The exodus is the climax of the Old Testament narrative. You can ask any Jew today, what's the the most important story in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible? What's the most important story in the the Jewish faith? Ten out of ten of them will tell you it's the Exodus. It's the Passover that we're going to observe at our Good Friday service, and the parting of the Red Sea so Moses could lead God's people out of slavery in Egypt. This is the climax, which makes it all the more significant What Stephen does next, verse 37, says, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He quotes Deuteronomy 18, 15. And then Stephen pauses here at the climax of his sermon to remind them that even Moses himself, who they revere so much that they're going to stone Stephen, or failing, uh, allegedly, to revere. Even Moses himself, remember, prophecy of one greater than him who was to come. It is to him you shall listen. And the prophet was Jesus. Listen to him. Obey him. Jesus is the better Moses. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Jesus left not just a palace, an earthly palace. Jesus stepped off his throne in heaven to come suffer amongst us. Jesus delivered us not just from earthly slavery and oppression, but from spiritual enslavement to sin and the eternal oppression of hell. He's the better Moses. Listen to him. Stephen continues. So remember, he's been charged with blaspheming. The law as well, the law of Moses. So he says, verse verse 38, Moses is the one who is in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Living oracles. That's that's what Stephen treats them as. Stephen says, I revere the law just as much as y'all do. Our problem isn't a lack of reverence. It's a lack of obedience. We all revere the law, but we all disobey it. Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey Moses, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt instead, saying to Aaron, make for us gods. While God was giving them the law on the mountain, what are they doing down at the the base of the mountain? They're already making golden calves, gods who go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And so they made a calf in those days, and they offered a sacrifice to the idol. And were rejoicing in the works of their own hands. They rebelled against God. But God, in his mercy, exiled them. Now, well, let me read it first. Verse 42. But, there's the but again, but God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rathan, the images that you made for yourself to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Now, exile may not seem at first glance like God's mercy, like redemption, like it fits the pairing. But Hebrews 12.6 reminds us that just like any good parent, God is the best parent, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. I love my son, Elijah, but if he rebels, or really I should say, therefore if he rebels, because if I say, but if he rebels, but implies that my discipline is in spite of my love, when in fact it's an expression of my love. Because I love him, when he rebels and I tell him to keep his pants on, and he pulls them down and pees all over him instead, He gets exiled to the bathtub. Sometimes the feeling has to get exiled from his little behind. Spare not the rod, lest I spoil the child. Similarly, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Even God's discipline, perhaps especially God's discipline in your life this morning is part of the redemptive work that he's doing in your life. Verse 44, Stephen starts To bring the sermon home, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations and God drove out before their fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and who asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. What's going on here? Let's keep reading. Verse 48. Yet, conjunction, junction, yet, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my home, throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? The gold... The wood, the occasion that you're, that you're using to build the temple, it's interesting to note. God never instructed His people to build the temple. Go back and reread the Old Testament. He never instructed them to do it. And Stephen quotes Isaiah 66:1 and 2 here to remind them that just like the tent of witness in the wilderness, their precious temple was only ever meant to be temporary. Because according to Jesus, something greater than the temple is here. He's speaking of Himself. See, they were attempting to confine God's presence to a tent, to a temple, to a religious system, to put God in a box. But Stephen testifies that Jesus blew the lid off the whole thing. When Jesus was crucified, the temple curtain that separated the people that we sang about this morning, it was torn, literally ripped from the top down. God himself tore it to prove that his presence could no longer be constrained to just a building. It flooded out into the hearts of his people. Christian, you are now the Holy of Holies. 1 Corinthians six nineteen: your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. This is astounding. It was anathema for these Jewish leaders. And Stephen, reading their body language, he knows he's touched a nerve. He knows what's coming. He's crossed the line. So he doubles down and he drives home his point even as he drives the last nail in his coffin. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You, you who received the law as delivered by angels, and yet did not keep it. God has given you grace upon grace upon grace, and yet you've rejected him time and time again. Stephen takes all four of the charges that they levy against him and he turns them right back around and points them at them. He says, you accuse me of blaspheming God, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. I've denigrated Moses, you're just like your fathers who spurned and persecuted Moses and all the prophets. I'm minimizing the law, verse 53, you received the law and yet you did not keep it. I've maligned the temple. Jesus, the righteous one, the one greater than the temple, you're a Messiah, you betrayed and murdered him. You destroyed the body of his temple. And unfortunately, Stephen doesn't have time to get to the good news that though they destroyed this temple, Jesus' body, yet in three days, Jesus promised to raise it up again, and he did. The good news that Jesus died, and yet... He rose for sin to purchase their redemption. If they would just repent and believe, they don't let them get to the good news before they pounce on him. But before we move on to point four there, don't miss here in point three that Stephen's ninth and final redemptive pairing here. He flips the script. In the previous eight Old Testament examples, You had God taking evil and turning it for good. Doubt to blessing, slavery to rescue, death to multiplication. But here, in number nine, Stephen highlights the exact opposite, that his opponents have taken something good and glorious and turned it for evil. They have taken God's grace, his Holy Spirit, his promises, his law, God's own son, and they've rejected it. They've rejected God himself. And why do they reject him? Because they're not redeemed. It's not redemptive. It's the opposite of redemption because they are not redeemed. This ought to be a glaring warning for you and me this this morning, friends. That as good as God's redemptive promise is to work all things together for good, that that is only a promise for those who are redeemed, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But for those who reject God, if you reject God's love for you, the love of a father who would send his only son to die a humiliating, agonizing death on a cross in your place, for your sake, out of love for you, if you reject Jesus, then not only will God not redeem all the evil in your life and one day work it for your good, actually God promises to do the exact opposite. That one day when you stand before the judgment seat of God the Father, every good gift that you have experienced, every blessing you have experienced in this life that was intended to point you to the giver of that gift, that was meant to inspire your gratitude and your worship of the Creator and Savior will instead be used as evidence against you in the courtroom of heaven. Jesus was very clear that greater condemnation is saved for those who were given every possible opportunity to receive Him in this life and yet have rejected Him. And so, friends, today, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, but repent and trust in Jesus, and you will be saved. That's God's offer, the gospel, the good news of eternal life that Jesus wants to offer you this morning. Unfortunately, Stephen's listeners don't repent, at least not yet. And so number four, they seethe with anger. Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. And yet, Jesus redemptively soothes Stephen. Verse 55. But, yet again, another beautiful but here. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You know, elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus is almost, maybe exclusively, somebody can fact check me, depicted as seated at the right hand of God the Father. Why? Because his work of redemption was finished on the cross. Jesus has no more sins left to pay for. His death covered all your sins, past, present, and future. And yet here, Jesus stands up. Why? Not to work, but to welcome. To welcome Stephen home. Stephen receives a standing ovation from the king of kings as his homecoming reception. Don't you want to welcome like that? As I read the New Testament, I'm convinced there's two kinds of Christians. Both make it into heaven. Because it's by grace that we're saved through Faith. But one kind of Christian mistakenly views grace as an excuse to coast. You just coast through life. You treat this life as nothing more than a waiting room for heaven. But the other kind of Christian, the Stephen kind of Christian, is fueled by God's grace to charge the gates of hell, pushing back darkness with the light of Christ until the day he finally calls you home. And when he does, that kind of Christian is gonna hear well-done, good and faithful servant. Don't you want to hear him say that to you, brother, sister? Well, what kind of Christian are you? Are you a heaven coaster? Or are you a hell charger? Number five. Stephen falls, but God calls. Verse 57. In their rage... They fall upon Stephen. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And yet, God uses this tragedy miraculously, supernaturally, to call people to himself. Three people. First, this, verse 58 And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. It's the very first explicit mention of Saul in the New Testament, who would, of course, go on to author half of it. And God is going to use Saul's complicity in Stephen's murder here in a powerful and redemptive way in the months and the chapters to come in Acts, to work on Saul's heart, to convict him. Saul loses sleep. He can't sleep after this. To convict him and eventually draw Saul to himself. God calls Saul to faith through this murder that he's a part of. Second, God calls Stephen home. He calls Saul to faith and he calls Stephen home. Verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Once again, so Christ-like. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And thirdly, God calls sinners to repentance. Verse 16, And falling to his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I have to believe have to believe that Saul wasn't the only murderer there that day who would eventually receive that forgiveness by repenting of their sin and turning to Jesus. I've got to believe that an event like this stays with you that a lot of them lost sleep for years to come seeing the boulder that you yourself just rolled off the cliff, crushed this poor man's legs while you hear his cries, not of pain not for justice, not for your mercy, but for your forgiveness. For God's mercy, for you. That stays with you. Finally, number six the world persecutes, God proliferates. Chapter eight. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. This was the spark that started anti-Christian persecution, hatred, murder, all over the place. And the church had to be thinking, God, what are you doing? Have you forgotten about us? Things were going so well. We had this great thing going. You were adding to our number daily here in Jerusalem, even multiplying. And then at the height of it, what? Now it's just all over? Because they couldn't see the bigger picture that God saw. That we are going to see unfold in the rest of the book of Acts. In our study. That God was using this horrible persecution to proliferate, to grow exponentially his church. Even outside of Jerusalem. Remember the commission. Back in chapter 1. Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Well, what do we read here in chapter 8? And they were scattered where? throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. This is the beginning of the expansion to the ends of the earth. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And if God can use persecution to proliferate his church, if God can use Stephen's martyrdom to call sinners to himself, if God can use Jesus' death to purchase your redemption, your eternal life, then just imagine what Jesus can do with a brokenness in your life this morning.